This podcast includes content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Be sure to head over to thecrimeshack.com for all available episodes, show notes, and merchandise, and also listen and subscribe to us for free on your favorite podcast app. And a special shout out to Jilbo411 and Amuki Listens for hitting that five-star rating on Apple iTunes. That means so much to us, and we appreciate your support. We're all familiar with serial killers. Ted Bundy, BTK killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. They are, dare I say, household names. It's true that the majority of serial killers are mostly men, because most murders are committed by men in general. Only about 10% of total murders in the United States are committed by women. There are many reasons for this. Could be because of social and cultural factors, biological factors, or psychological factors. We do know that the psychological motives of female serial killers differ greatly with their male counterparts. Male serial killers will have a tendency to hunt their victims, who are often strangers, and they are also more likely to torture their victims before killing them or practice necrophilia or cannibalism. On the other hand, female serial killers tend to target their victims, who are most likely people they know, and they usually kill for financial gain. In the 1980s, there was one such member of our society who seemed to fit that profile, someone who was quite busy making her mark to become Sacramento, California's most notorious female serial killer, Dorothea Puente. On January 9, 1929, Dorothea Helen Gray was born in Redlands, California. The city of Redlands lies about 64 miles directly east of the city of Los Angeles. Dorothea was brought up in a tumultuous and abusive home with both of her parents being alcoholics. She was the sixth child out of seven children. Her mother, Trudy Gray, made money being a sex worker and her father, Jesse James Gray, a cotton picker, once attempted suicide in front of Dorothea. Growing up in a poor and abusive home, Dorothea often had to scavenge for food. Her father would end up dying of tuberculosis in 1937 when Dorothea was just eight years old, and her mother, after losing custody of all of her children, died just a year later in a motorcycle accident. Having no relatives that could immediately take her in, Dorothea was then placed in an orphanage where she was sexually abused. Dorothea would often embellish her childhood, stating that she was in fact one of 18 children who were born and raised in Mexico. The gray children were farmed out to different homes, and according to census records, Dorothea lived in the city of Napa at the age of 13. School records show that she was a student in Los Angeles at 16, but less than a year later, she moved to Olympia, Washington, where she would call herself Sherry and worked in a milkshake parlor during the summer of 1945. She would also soon turn to prostitution to earn extra money. 
Her extended family in Fresno would eventually remove her from the orphanage, but the trauma from her early years would follow Dorothea throughout her entire life. Despite her chaotic upbringing, she managed to marry, not once, but four times, and only two divorces are actually documented. In 1945, at the age of 16, while Dorothea was living in a motel with a friend working as a prostitute, she met Fred McFall, a 22-year-old soldier who had just returned from the Pacific Ocean Theater of World War II. Fred recalled meeting Dorothea and described her as a good-looking female and that she knew how to make a buck when she wanted to. The couple married in Reno, Nevada. Dorothea claimed she was 30 at the time and gave a false name and moved to Gardnerville, Nevada, a small town that lies on the Nevada-California border. They set up a house and eventually had two daughters between the years 1946 and 1948. It didn't take long for Dorothea to show her true colors to Fred, and he began to discover she had a few bad habits. She not only loved to spend money excessively, buying nice dresses and silk stockings, she loved to lie excessively, making up stories about her upbringing and background. She would claim to have befriended Rita Hayworth, that she was the sister of the ambassador to Sweden, and that she survived the Bataan Death March in World War II and the bombing of Hiroshima. She'd also claim that when she was a rockette, she'd met U.S. Senator John Kennedy and his wife Jackie. The Rockettes surprisingly have no record of a Dorothea McFall. Following a miscarriage, Fred eventually left her in 1948 and her daughters, causing one of their daughters to be raised by Fred's mother in Sacramento and the other to be adopted outside the family. Forty years later, one of the daughters had a chance meeting with her biological mother and described Dorothea as being a woman with no real personality. After her husband left her, Dorothea had no source of steady income, so she resorted to trying to forge checks. In 1948, she stole checks from someone she knew and bought a hat, shoes, pantyhose, and a purse with the stolen money. She was caught and convicted of forgery and ended up serving four months in jail. In 1952, Dorothea married her second husband, a Swedish man named Axel Johansson in San Francisco and moved to Sacramento a short while later. The couple would have violent fights and would separate numerous times. When her husband would be gone for long periods of time, Dorothea, having an aversion to monogamy, would often have other men come over to her home. This happened so often that the neighbors even complained about the constant flow of taxis that would drop off men at all hours of the night. Despite all this, Dorothea would later describe her relationship with Axel as her favorite marriage. Several years into their marriage in 1960, Dorothea purchased and managed a brothel. When the business was investigated, she was charged and sentenced to 90 days in Sacramento County Jail. After she was released, she roamed the streets and was picked up and charged with vagrancy and given an additional 90 days in jail. Even though she was still married to Johansson, he was not in the position to support her. 
Court records indicated that he had Dorothea committed to a psychiatric ward in 1961 and the doctors placed her on antipsychotics. As time went on, she continued to commit illegal activities that probably would have resulted in additional jail time had she not found a job as a nurse's aide caring for the elderly and disabled in private homes. It was shortly after this that Dorothea got into the boarding house business. After 14 years together, Dorothea divorced Johansson and married her third husband, Robert Puente, in Mexico City in 1968. Robert was 19 years her junior and seemed to have the same infidelity issues as Dorothea. During their marriage, Dorothea ran a halfway house for alcoholics called the Samaritans, but it ended up closing down as she accrued up to $10,000 in debt. Unfortunately, the third time was not a charm as her marriage lasted only two years. When it ended, Dorothea was given the opportunity to manage a three-story, 16-bedroom Victorian boarding home at 2100 F Street in Sacramento, California. It was at this home that she would provide care and housing to the homeless and destitute of the area, taking in approximately 40 tenants. The home quickly became a thriving business and she would hold open houses during the holidays to not only entertain the poor and homeless of the community, but also for the social workers of the district whose endorsements she came to rely upon. Each month, she would collect all of the tenants' mail before they were able to see it, would take their benefits checks, and give them only a small amount of money to spend. The tenants, with issues of their own, would spend what little money they had at nearby bars and would then be picked up by police, because someone tipped them off, and jailed for 30 days. With the tenants in jail, Dorothea would then pocket the rest of their money. As the boarding house was becoming financially successful, Dorothea would donate to different political campaigns and charities, allowing her to seemingly become a Sacramento socialite. She would claim that she spent time with politicians such as California governors Pat Brown, Jerry Brown, and Ronald Reagan, and would state that she was good friends with Reagan and his first wife, Jane Wyman. Not staying single for too long, Dorothea moved on to husband number four, 52-year-old Pedro Angel Montalvo, a resident of the F Street boarding house and a violent alcoholic. The couple was married in Reno, Nevada in 1976. The marriage only endured a few months and Pedro left his wife the same year they were married. Following the separation, Dorothea started to roam local bars looking for older men with benefits. No, not those benefits, financial benefits. Here's how her system worked. She would charm the men to gain their trust, steal their benefit checks, forge their signature, then cash them. Although she was great at actually committing the crimes, Dorothea was terrible at covering her crimes and was caught in the act and charged with 34 counts of treasury fraud. She was given no jail time, but five years probation, during which she continued to commit the same crimes. She was ordered to undergo counseling and treatment with a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist would describe her 
as a very disturbed woman and diagnosed her with chronic indifferentiated schizophrenia, an enduring condition that may produce delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech or behavior, or catatonic behavior. Mildred Ballinger, a retired social worker, first met Dorothea in the 1970s. She'd say that Dorothea was obsessed with her own health, saying that she suffered from cancer, but every time she would see her, the cancer had moved to a different area in her body, moving from her brain, to her breast, to her liver. So she knew that Dorothea was lying about it. Mildred began to suspect something was off about Dorothea and her tenants when she noticed that two elderly women in her care had suffered reoccurring illnesses that couldn't be diagnosed by doctors. When they were tested, their blood showed high levels of unprescribed drugs in their system. Mildred urged other social workers to steer clear of Dorothea, but most ignored her warnings because there weren't many options for places that would take in less desirable tenants. Dorothea had a close friend named Ricardo Orderica who owned a powder blue two-story property at 1426 F Street in Sacramento. Dorothea was very close to Ricardo and would refer to him as her nephew, although they were not related. In 1981, Ricardo agreed to have Dorothea rent out the upper floor of his home. Not long after Dorothea moved into 1426 F Street, 61-year-old Ruth Clausen Monroe moved into the house in April of 1982. Ruth had been a clerk in a pharmacy in downtown Sacramento before she retired in 1980 and had married Harold Monroe in 1981. Harold then introduced Ruth to Dorothea in the fall of that same year. Soon after their marriage, Harold became diagnosed with terminal cancer and was admitted to the Veterans Administration Hospital for 24-hour care. To save money, Ruth moved into the Sacramento house, bringing all her belongings with her. Ruth had five children who would visit her at the F Street house often, sometimes daily. Dorothea and Ruth had decided to start a small food service operation where they would cater meals to patrons at the Round Corner Tavern in Midtown Sacramento, but they ended up shutting down the business a week after Ruth moved in because it just didn't work out. It was only a couple of weeks after Ruth moved in that she began to get ill. Her body became so weak she struggled to stand and told a friend at a beauty parlor that, I feel like I'm going to die. Ruth's son, William Clausen, who checked in on her often, was shocked to see his sickly mother drinking creme de menthe since his mother rarely drank. She told her son that Dorothea had given it to her to help her calm down. William believed Dorothea's advice, mainly because she had conned them into thinking she was a nurse and a nurse's aide. 17 days after her arrival to the F Street house, Ruth died from an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen, the active ingredient in Tylenol. When questioned about her friend's death, Dorothea would tell police that Ruth was depressed because of her terminally ill husband. The police believed her, and the coroner ruled her death a suicide. Ruth's family didn't buy it and suspected Dorothea of poisoning her. 
Their theory was even more validated when they discovered that Dorothea had pulled out thousands of dollars belonging to their mother from their joint business account. A few weeks after Ruth's death, 74-year-old Malcolm McKenzie accused Dorothea of drugging and stealing his pension. Apparently, he had met Dorothea at a local bar, had a few drinks with her, and invited her back to his apartment. It was there that he suddenly became dizzy and was unable to speak or move. He could only sit there and watch as Dorothea searched his house for valuables and stole his rare penny collection and a diamond ring off of his finger. She was also accused of drugging three women with tranquilizers to steal their checks, cash, and valuables in the early 1980s. These thefts led to her arrest, and on August 18, 1982, she was sentenced to five years in prison, only serving three years. Having been in this environment previously, Dorothea quickly adjusted and started corresponding with a pen pal. 77-year-old Oregon retiree Everson Gilmouth had an inclination for writing letters to incarcerated women. He struck up an emotional relationship with Dorothea, and she soon discovered that he had a nice-sized pension and owned a truck and Airstream trailer. When she was released on September 9, 1985, Everson Gilmouth was there to pick her up in his red 1980 Ford pickup truck. As part of her probation, she was ordered to stay away from the elderly and to not handle government checks of any kind issued to others. A state psychologist who had evaluated Dorothea before her release from prison in 1985 diagnosed her with schizophrenia, writing in his report that, This woman is a disturbed woman who does not appear to have remorse or regret for what she has done, she is to be considered dangerous, and her living environment and or employment should be closely monitored. Everson moved things along quickly and told his sister he was going to marry Dorothea and add her to his checking account. At the time, Dorothea was renting the upper room at 1426 F Street for just $200 a month. Ricardo Ordorica, the owner of the house, agreed to let them rent the entire upstairs of the home for $600 a month. Ricardo eventually moved out of 1426 F Street and left Dorothea to take care of the entire house. She began to run the property as a boarding house and sublet the first floor to tenants for cheap rent and took over the second story for herself. Part of the agreement with being a tenant in Dorothea's care was that she would read and open their mail. During this daily process, she would remove their social security checks and pay the tenants a fixed allowance, pocketing the rest of the money for what she called expenses for the boarding house. The house was soon filled to capacity as social workers learned that it was one of the few places where they could refer their homeless clients. However, no one thought to do a background check of the sweet landlady that was quickly taking in the elderly, disabled, and drug and alcohol addicted tenants, and that running an unlicensed boarding house for elderly tenants was a direct violation of Dorothea's parole. In regards to how her tenants viewed Dorothea, 
Her reputation was mixed. Some of the tenants resented her for refusing to give them their mail or their money and would say she would often throw cuss-filled fits and throw furniture down the stairs. Yet other tenants would be grateful to her for her acts of kindness. John Sharp, a 64-year-old retired cook who lived in Dorothea's boarding house for 11 months, said that she would feed stray cats, cooked homemade meals for her tenants, handed out vegetables from her garden, passed out homemade tamales, gave her tenants clothes and cigarettes, and even bought one of her disabled tenants an adult tricycle so he can get around more easily. Her charitable work in the Hispanic community, such as giving them clothes, food, and advice to young Mexican women about divorce, did not go unnoticed. In November of 1985, Dorothea hired a handyman named Ismael Flores to install wood paneling in her home. For his work, she paid him $800 and gave him a red 1980 Ford pickup truck, stating that it was her boyfriend's truck and that he no longer needed it. She also asked Flores to build her something peculiar a six by three by two foot plywood box so that she could store books and other items. Once the box was done, she asked Flores to transport it to a storage depot. The two of them then got in the truck and on the way to the storage depot, she told Flores to stop on Garden Highway in Sutter County and just dump the box on a riverbank in an unofficial dumping site telling Flores that the contents were just junk anyways. Two months later, a fisherman spotted the box sitting on the riverbank and informed police. When police pried open the box, they found a badly decomposed body of an elderly man. The man was dressed in his underwear, wrapped in a white bedsheet, and bound with black electrical tape. The body was so decomposed it was unrecognizable. With nothing to identify the body, the man was labeled as a John Doe and remained unidentified for the next three years. Meanwhile, Dorothea continued to collect Everson's pension and wrote forged letters to his family, sending them thinking of you cards in an attempt to cover up suspicions about his whereabouts. During this time, she was not off of parole agent's radar, and they would often visit her up to 15 times at her home. But no violations, none even for violating her parole, were ever given, and she was never charged with anything. In 1986, Dorothea spoke with social worker Peggy Nickerson and offered to house her clients. Dorothea preferred elderly clients with fixed incomes. Nickerson ended up sending her 19 clients over the next two years, becoming concerned when some of the clients began to disappear. Neighbors on F Street also began to become suspicious when Dorothea told them she had adopted a homeless alcoholic named Chief to dig in her basement and remove soil and garbage in a wheelbarrow. Chief would later take down a garage in the backyard and install a fresh concrete patio slab. Shortly afterwards, Chief disappeared. Dorothea always had an excuse for their disappearance. One tenant left to be with relatives, 
Another had become a burden and was telling her how to run her house, so she packed up his stuff in the middle of the night and threw it in the street. There was always an explanation. In February of 1987, 78-year-old Leona Carpenter was discharged from a hospital and placed as a tenant in Dorothea's home, but went missing just two weeks later. In July 1987, 62-year-old James Gallup was released from the hospital after being treated for a brain tumor and moved into the care of the boarding house at F Street. His benefit checks were also mailed to F Street, and Dorothea retrieved them upon their arrival, forging his signature on checks totaling more than $2,000. When a physician tried to contact Gallup and couldn't get a hold of him, Dorothea called them and told them that Gallup had left to Los Angeles indefinitely. The neighbors of the boarding house began to complain of the foul and pungent stench coming from the residence and the constant amount of flies in the area. Dorothea would blame the smell on fish emulsions that she used to fertilize her garden or rats in the floorboards or even that the sewers were backed up. She attempted to cover the smell by dumping bags of lime and gallons of bleach into her yard or spraying air freshener in her house. When the neighbors contacted the health department to come out and investigate, they weren't able to find anything causing the odor. The disappearances continued. On August 19, 1987, 77-year-old Betty Palmer, a resident of the F Street boarding house, went to a doctor's appointment and never returned. The following October, 62-year-old Vera Martin also moved into the boarding house and was never seen or heard from again. The boarders in Dorothea's house paid a monthly rent of $350, which included a private room and two hot meals a day, breakfast at 6.30 a.m. and dinner at 3.30 p.m. Puente was a pretty good cook, which will come up later in the story, and would prepare pancakes and bacon and eggs for breakfast. However, if the tenants missed a meal, they went hungry. There were no leftovers, no room service, and they weren't allowed to go into the kitchen at odd hours. Alcohol was also forbidden in the house, but of course Dorothea kept a well-stocked bar for herself upstairs. On February 1st, 1988, a volunteer aid worker named Judy Moyes needed to find an alternate acceptable living situation for Alvaro Bert Gonzalez Montoya, a 51-year-old mentally disabled schizophrenic. He had been living in a detox center for the last five years. Here's a conversation between Bert and a woman who is presumably Judy Moyes about him having to possibly leave the detox center where he is from, and asking him about the voices that he would hear. This audio is rough, but you can make out Bert mumbling his responses. Where where were you born? Where was that? Costa Rica. When did you start hearing voices? I remember What happens if they uh, if they take detox away? Then where will you live? They they they, they show you. 
No, they're not going. It's not. They're not going to close it. But if they did close it, some, some, sometime in the far future, if they did close it, then where would you like to live? Judy had heard good things about the boarding house on F Street. Judy and a friend paid a visit to Dorothea's Victorian boarding house and were impressed at what they saw. Two days later, they arrived with Bert and he moved in. Within just a few weeks, Bert's general condition had improved dramatically. His hair was washed and combed and his nails and clothes were clean. Under Dorothea's watchful care, he had also been taking his antipsychotic medication more regularly making him more able to converse in whole sentences rather than grunting or moaning in Spanish when he spoke. About a month later, on March 31, 1988, Dorothea took Bert downtown to the Social Security Administration building. She explained to the staff that she was there on behalf of Mr. Montoya, who was mentally disabled, was incapable of handling his own finances, and wished her to be made payee for his benefits. The staff member gave her an application to complete, and a short time later, the application was approved, and in June of 1988, she began to receive the $637 of Burt Montoya's benefits each month. Overall, more than $2,000 was sent to Dorothea for Burt's benefits. On August 29th, Burt missed a medical appointment and was never seen or heard from again. Dorothea would tell her tenants that he left to Utah after a trip to Mexico to visit her relatives. Judy Moyes attempted to contact Bert and, unable to reach him, decided to pay a visit to the boarding house on November 7th, where Dorothea fed her the same story about Bert leaving town. She didn't buy the story and promptly filed a missing persons report. This chain of events would lead to a grim discovery at the infamous boarding house. It was the morning of November 11, 1988, when Detective John Cabrera and Homicide Detective Terry Brown of the Sacramento Police Department, along with Federal Probation Agent Jim Wilson, arrived at 1426 F Street. They were inquiring about the reported missing person, Bert Montoya. Dorothea answered the door and allowed the officers inside. They entered the knick-knack cluttered home, but didn't notice anything unusual. There were photos of Dorothea with politicians scattered throughout. Dorothea standing next to California Governors Jerry Brown and George Duke Majin, and another photo of her and Bishop Francis Quinn, who served as the Catholic Bishop of the Diocese of Sacramento. While they were questioning Dorothea and another one of her tenants, John Sharp, John passed one of the officers a handwritten note that said Dorothea had told him to lie about Bert's whereabouts. The officers left and returned four days later with a warrant to search her property. When the officers returned, they began to investigate the home's interior and exterior when they noticed that some of the soil in the southeast corner of the property's yard had recently been disturbed. The men retrieved shovels from their vehicles, shovels that they had brought with them on a hunch, and they began digging. It didn't take long for them to dig up what looked like shreds of cloth and beef jerky. 
Meanwhile, Jim Wilson was digging a second hole in another corner of the yard when he heard a thud as his shovel struck something hard about two and a half feet down into the hole. Wilson called over Cabrera and Brown and noticed what appeared to be a tree root. Cabrera hopped down into the hole to see if he can pull up the item. Cabrera would later explain to the Sacramento Bee newspaper what he discovered in the hole. I wrapped my hand around it, braced my feet, and started pulling. I pulled so hard that it broke loose, and when I pulled it up, I could see the joint. It was a bone. At that time, I was airborne and out of the hole. Dorothea was asked to come down to the garden and told to look inside the hole at the remains. She gasped and put her hands to her cheek as if shocked at what she was seeing. I don't know what to tell you, she told them. The men continued to dig and came upon two dark dress shoes, one with a piece of rotting flesh that used to be a foot still wedged inside of it, and it was at that point that they stopped digging so that they can return the following day with better equipment. These items here, uh, were uncovered out of the hole that Detective Brown is currently digging in. We found an object that we're attempting to remove. 11-11-88, and by shovel in hand, we've uncovered bone with uh, material wrapped around it. That's approximately uh, two and a half feet down below the surface. See where Detective Brown is. Detective Brown has just uncovered the shoe with what appears to be a human, possible human foot inside of it, partially decayed. We're approximately two and a half feet, maybe three feet down into the dirt, into the soil. Again, you see the bone area protruding here. There's another shoe. And here is the second shoe right there that he's uncovering. Okay, another bone has been uncovered here. There was some white type powder substance there, Detective Brown pointing out the other bone that has just been uncovered. And the white powder. And the white powder, uh, some type of substance in the white soil. Powder. It's a possibility that the substance is lye powder. Without any chemical analysis, uh, that's just a guess. Still digging. Can you see the shoes? Can we get a, here's the second shoe that was uncovered. That's the bottom heel. Can you see the substance in inside of that shoe there? Clothing, bones. The next morning, a county work crew with heavy machinery, the county coroner, and a team of forensic anthropologists all arrived at 1426 F Street. You can imagine what commotion this caused in the neighborhood. It didn't take long before neighbors and onlookers were trying to peer over the fence at what was taking place in Dorothea's yard. What in the world could they possibly be doing at the home of the generous landlady who handed out tamales during the holidays and had helped so many. The first body they dug up from the yard was a small, skeletonized individual with gray hair. A gruesome story is unfolding at this Sacramento address, and that story tops News 10 tonight at 6. Detectives discovered a body buried at a downtown Sacramento home. Police fear they may find more. Lynn Gormley with the story. It was an informant who told police they should look behind this Victorian home at 1426 F Street. Digging up the back garden, police found a body. 
After digging for a short time, uh, they did find what appears to be the remains of a human being. And so we have stopped our digging at this time. We're waiting now for the experts to come in. A Bay Area anthropologist is on his way. The remains will be analyzed, but police already suspect how the person died. Did your informant tell you that these people may have been poisoned? Uh, that's a possibility, yes. The owner and landlord rented out four rooms downstairs. Police have questioned Dorothea Puentes, then released her. Some renters have also been questioned. No one has been charged. Police suspect the victims may have been poisoned, then buried in the backyard. The body found today could have been in the ground for as long as four years. So it's going to be an excavation. Actually has to bring it out. We'll have to screen it, and we'll have to take it back. Sounds like this will take several days. Yes. One suspicious place has caught police attention. They say beyond the fence, next to the uncovered body, is newly laid cement. That cement will be removed along with tons of dirt that will be sifted for evidence. The police have not filed any charges, and they say they have no strong suspects in this case. Neighbors say the people who lived here were quiet and kept a very nice house. Lynn Gormley, News 10, Sacramento. Having no apparent suspects, the detectives brought 59-year-old Dorothea into police headquarters for questioning on November 11, 1988. In this interview, Dorothea tries to explain Bert's absence and the body found in her yard. It's interesting to note that in this interview, she tells the officer that her birth name was Puente, which it was not, it was Gray. This interview gives you a good idea of her outward demeanor and how well she played into her meek yet rigid persona. In your D O R O T H E S. Now, D U E N T E. I was born Puente, and, and uh, I was married to a, a Montalvo, and I was married to a Puente. You were born Montalvo, right? No, I was born Puente. Puente. Where were you born? Redlands, California. Redlands, okay. Now, the questions we need to ask you, I need, I need, I need all the truth from you, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, number one is, going back, of course, you know how this whole thing got started, was because of this last individual, right. Montoya. Right. Now, his disappearance is very suspicious, I can tell you that. Yeah, and the social worker hasn't seen him. So who is lying to me? Who is lying to me, Dorothea? Well, I'm not. He was there Saturday and Sunday. How can Mr. Sharp... Well, he doesn't, he doesn't even associate with the other people. Mr. Sharp also told us that you had told him to lie. I did not. About saying that he was there because he later told us that. I you did told him not. To lie. There's one of two things I can surmise. Okay. And that is Mr. Montoya is dead. No, he's not. That I'm just saying, let me just, I'm trying to surmise this and then we'll try to clear this up. That he is dead. And that either he, either either John McCauley or, or Mer, was it Melvin? Mervin. Mervin. John. Either killed him. Or that maybe he meant foul play by your hands. That's, that's, that's my alternatives. I don't know. But my other alternative is that the fact that somewhere in that backyard, Dorothea, that he's lying, maybe along with other people. No. Maybe he isn't there. I want to know. I want no, you not. to be truthful Sir, with I me. didn't even know that body was there. Okay. If I had him, I would have said, no, don't search the yard. You know, 
but I have nothing to hide. I don't want to go back to prison. Well, I realize that. I realize I'm an old that. lady. I realize I'm that too. I'm trying to get off parole. I'm trying to get my life together. Dorothea, I know if we dig, we're going to find more. I know that. I know that. Well, I didn't put them there. I couldn't drag a body any place. I believe that. But I believe there's somebody else involved here. This is absolutely Sir, goofy. I have not killed anybody. Maybe you didn't kill anybody. That may be true. But maybe you know what really happened. No, I don't. I think you know about Mr. Montoya. Because Mr. Montoya is not in Costa Rica. Mr. Montoya He's is not, not in Costa Utah. Rica. He, where is he? He's in that backyard, I believe, Dorothea. He's in that backyard or he's been disposed of some other manner. Not by me. Then by Mr. McCauley. I don't Dorothea, I'm asking you. I don't I'm know. Asking you, I don't know. I don't think I want to know what you know. It. I want to know what you know. You know you are the leader of the house. You have the background. Okay? You've been there before. You know what I'm talking about. I have never killed anybody in my life. Then who did kill somebody? Mr. McCauley? Tell I me, don't know. Tell, tell me now. I don't know. Tell me now. I don't know. After the interview without enough evidence to hold her, Dorothea was allowed to leave and go back home, with assigned security keeping watch over the property during the night. Over the following several days, the yard of the boarding house was excavated inch by inch. As concrete and soil was dug up, authorities were not prepared for the horror that lay beneath them. The first body recovered, the small, gray-haired individual, was the body of 78-year-old tenant Leona Carpenter. Two more bodies were recovered the next day, and by November 14th, they had excavated seven bodies from the grounds of the boarding house. They were eventually identified as follows. Alvaro Bert Montoya, 52 years old, found buried under a newly planted apricot tree in the side yard. Leona Carpenter, 78 years old, found buried near the back fence. It was her leg bone that Detective Cabrera initially thought was a tree root. Dorothy Miller, 64 years old, found buried with her arms taped to her chest with duct tape. Betty Palmer, 78 years old, found buried without her head, hands, and lower legs, dressed in a sleeveless white nightgown below a statue of St. Francis de Assisi, a few feet from the sidewalk towards the front of the house. James Gallup, 62 years old. Vera Faye Martin, 64 years old, found buried with her wristwatch still ticking. And Benjamin Fink, 55 years old, found buried dressed in striped boxer shorts. A detective interviewed tenant John Sharp to question him about the last time Ben Fink was seen alive. You've been there a total of 11 months. Okay, now, so you see Ben about four months ago, and what was the incident you see about Well, he was, uh, got pretty drunk and, and was in his room next to mine. And uh, I had mentioned to Dorothea then, <coughs> I said, now you've got a true alcoholic on your hands. I said, he's going to be stealing your liquor upstairs because, you know, she's got all kinds of it. And she said, he's already stealing it. He said, he's stolen about three bottles already. 
But anyway, he uh, was in his room downstairs, and, and he just kept getting drunker and drunker. I guess he'd go out. I never paid that much attention to when he'd go out or anything, but I'd hear him, you know, go out. And finally, after he's been there drunk about four days, she came down and said she's going to take him upstairs and get him feeling better. And that's the last I ever saw Ben. Okay, and that was about four months ago. Yeah. She came down, you see him, did you see her take him out no. of the... No. Okay, she just said, I'm going to get yeah. Ben, said, take him good. upstairs, make him better. Yeah, I never saw her take him up or anything like that. She said Did you remember the next day of not seeing him? Oh, yeah, I remember not seeing him the next day. Did you ask about him? No. Oh, no. Okay. She said she was going to take him upstairs. And like I say, she, you don't ask her questions unless you want to get in trouble. <laughs> the unearthed bodies were all severely decayed with many of their internal organs almost mummified, and several were bundled up in bed sheets that matched the linens found in the boarding house. As the team was continuing to dig, Dorothea walked into the yard dressed in a pink dress with a cherry red overcoat and purple heels and carrying a large maroon purse and pink umbrella and asked Cabrera if she was under arrest. He told her no because they didn't have enough evidence yet to detain her. So she then asked him if her and her tenant, John McCauley, could go to the Clarion Hotel down the street to meet Ricardo Ordorica for a cup of coffee so that she could calm her nerves. Cabrera told her she could. While the digging was still going on, the police also began to look into the disappearances of 77-year-old Everson Gilmouth and 61-year-old Ruth Monroe. They were able to pull the records of Ruth's death at 1426 F Street, and it was only after unearthing the seven bodies that authorities would change her death to a homicide. Gilmouth was later finally identified as the man in the plywood box found in January 1986 by the riverbank, but they could not determine the cause of death. Post-mortem examination of the body showed large concentration of the drug florazepam, a sedative. In Dorothea's house, police found dozens of prescriptions for florazepam among her personal documents. They also found a note in which Dorothea had written the first initial of each victim and the amount of money she was getting from forging their disability and social security checks. The following investigation would soon reveal that Dorothea, who enjoyed indulging herself with silk chiffon dresses, the occasional facelift, and $110 bottles of Giorgio perfume, if you were a fan of Giorgio perfume before, you may not like it so much now, had cashed over 60 benefit checks belonging to the exhumed victims after their deaths providing her with about $5,000 a month. With a motive and enough evidence to move forward with charges, the police made their move to arrest Dorothea. Uh, but wait, remember that cup of coffee she left to go get? Apparently, Dorothea didn't have that cup of coffee, but instead, she and John McCauley had taken a cab to a West Sacramento bar where she had a few drinks while John drank beer. The two then separated and Dorothea hopped on a bus to Los Angeles. She then got a room at the $25 a night Royal Viking Hotel in downtown LA for three days under the name of Dorothea Johansson. 
throwing off authorities as to her whereabouts by booking a flight to LA in her own name and never actually taking the flight. When police found out that they had been duped and Dorothea had skipped town, they launched a statewide search along with the FBI to locate her. Dorothea, not able to stay secluded for very long, made a trip to the Monte Carlo Tavern, a local dive bar on her fourth day in the hotel. She peered around the bar for her next victim and came upon 59-year-old retired carpenter Charles Wilgus. She introduced herself as Donna Johansson and ordered a vodka and orange juice, striking up a conversation with Charles. Dorothea quickly asked him how much money he received from Social Security a month, and he told her, 576 a month. During their conversation, Charles kept wondering why this woman looked so familiar. They talked for several hours, and before parting ways, Charles promised to take Dorothea shopping the following day. But when Charles got back home to his apartment, he realized where he had seen the woman in the bar. He turned on the television and it hit him that he had seen her on TV that morning as the woman who was wanted on suspicion of multiple murders. The police were contacted and at around 10.20 p.m. that evening, they arrived at the Royal Viking Hotel, knocked on the door to room 31, and Dorothea was arrested without incident. As the police were escorting her back to Sacramento on a plane chartered by KCRA News, a reporter named Mike Boyd was conducting an in-flight interview with Dorothea when she told him, I have not killed anyone. The checks I cashed, yes. I used to be a very good person at one time. Dorothea was booked into the Sacramento County Jail where she had to turn over an envelope in her bag that contained $3,042.55. A few minutes later, she was arraigned without bail on one count of the murder of Bert Montoya. An additional eight counts would be added on March 31, 1989, and she would plead not guilty to all charges. Her trial would be moved to Monterey County, California, on a change of venue motion filed by her attorneys because of all the publicity her case had received. After months of delays, the trial finally began on February 9, 1993. Dubbed by the media as the Death House Landlady, the total number of individuals that fell victim to Dorothea was 15, nine confirmed murders and six unconfirmed. Prosecutor John O'Mara's argument was that it was a simple case of predatory greed. Dorothea murdered her tenants so that she could steal their government benefits. He portrayed Dorothea as a manipulating, cold-blooded killer whose sole reason for running her boarding house was to cash in on their benefits and kill them if they got in her way of doing so. Dorothea's defense team, court-appointed attorneys Peter Flouten and Kevin Climo, would argue that the tenants died of natural causes. They stated that Dorothea didn't call the paramedics for the tenants that died of natural causes because she was operating the boarding house in violation of her parole. So to avoid any additional prison time, she would bury them in her garden. 
The defense would call witnesses who would testify about Dorothea's charitable nature and her traumatic upbringing, which they argued contributed to high levels of stress and affected her judgment. They also argued that the money she stole from her tenants was barely enough to cover the operating expenses of the boarding house and that she stole the money to cover those expenses only, but that she was not an evil killer. Dorothea remained emotionless during the entire trial, jotting down frequent notes to her attorneys. The prosecution flashed photos in the courtroom of the nine victims, which were dubbed the shadow people because of the lack of anyone in their lives, photos of them alive and smiling, and then photos of them post-mortem. Dorothea would glance up at the photos with no emotion. Omara stated that she wanted people who had no relatives, no friends, no family. People who, when they're gone, won't have others coming around and asking questions. The main issue that the prosecution faced was that the case was almost purely circumstantial. There were no eyewitnesses to any of the murders, and they could only prove the cause of death in the case of Ruth Monroe. The other victims' bodies were too decomposed. Toxicology reports showed that the seven victims had a variety of drugs in their systems, antidepressants, antipsychotics, anticonvulsants, painkillers, and tranquilizers. But the one drug present in all of them was the sedative flurazepam. Dorothea would obtain the refills for this drug through either a court-appointed psychiatrist or a pair of doctors who believed her stories and simply wanted to help. The concoction of drugs would have proven lethal to the victims, especially when mixed with alcohol or weakened them to the point where they couldn't fight back against someone suffocating them with a pillow or a blanket. But since the bodies were so decayed, it was difficult to obtain accurate toxicology results. There was also the fact that no one can rule out the possibility that the victims took the drugs on their own. The prosecution's theory was that she had used the sleeping pills to put her victims to sleep, then suffocated them and hired day laborers or ex-cons to dig holes in her backyard. Omara concluded his closing argument by displaying an optical illusion picture used in psychology that can be viewed in different ways and told the jury, keep in mind, things are not always as they seem. After eight months of trial, over 150 witnesses and over 3,500 pieces of evidence, the Monterey jury deliberated on July 15, 1993, and over a month later came to a decision. After title of court and cause, count four. We, the jury, in the above entitled cause, find the defendant, Dorothea Montalvo Puente, guilty of the crime of murder in the second degree of Leona Carpenter, a lesser included offense of that charged in count four of the information. Verdict, count five. We, the jury, in the above entitled cause, find the defendant, Dorothea Montalvo Puente, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree of Dorothy Miller, as charged in count five of the information. Verdict, count seven. 
We, the jury, in the above entitled cause, find the defendant, Dorothea Montalvo Puente, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree of Benjamin Fink as charged in count seven of the information. Special circumstance. We, the jury, in the above entitled cause, find the special circumstance allegation that the defendant, Dorothea Montalvo Puente, did commit multiple murders, to wit, at least one crime of murder of the first degree and one or more crimes of murder of the first or second degree to be true. Dorothea was guilty of first-degree murder in two of the nine counts she faced and second-degree murder on one count. The jury could not come to a decision on the other six counts, and the judge declared a mistrial on the remaining counts. Dorothea was sentenced in December of 1993 to two life sentences without the possibility of parole. She would serve out the entirety of her sentence, expiring all appeals, in the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. Although Dorothea kept a stoic appearance during the reading of the verdict, it was reported that she cried with her attorneys after the verdict was read and told her lawyers, I didn't kill anyone. After being incarcerated for 18 years, she died in prison on March 27, 2011, at the age of 82 years old, after a battle with colon and liver cancer. She insisted on her innocence until the day she died, claiming that the tenants all died of natural causes. In an interesting side note, in 1998, Dorothea began corresponding with a man by the name of Shane Bugby. Shane ended up publishing a cookbook called Cooking with a Serial Killer, which included Dorothea's own recipes. You remember all those meals that Dorothea would cook for her tenants, right? The book was published in 2004 and includes about 50 recipes and photos of Dorothea's prison artwork. If you're interested in this uh, conversation piece, you can pick it up on Amazon and I will put the link in my show notes as well. As we think about this case and Dorothea's life, We can't help but ask the question that pops up in our minds with most serial killers. Why? William Ficari, the forensic psychiatrist who was assigned to evaluate her for trial, diagnosed Dorothea with antisocial personality disorder, a mental disorder where a person consistently shows no regard for right and wrong, has a tendency to antagonize and manipulate, and ignores the rights and feelings of others. Vakari speculated that her running a boarding house was caused by a desire to undo her traumatic childhood memories. He is quoted as saying, I think she truly wanted to rehabilitate her tenants as she could not the people in her own family. On the other hand, when these people would act up, she snapped and decided to kill them. The Victorian house at 1426 F Street still stands today and is in the ownership of Tom and Barbara Holmes. The house has become a common tourist attraction adorned with mannequins and other oddities and displays a sign that reads, This house is innocent. Thank you for listening. Please check out our website at thecrimeshock.com for the latest episodes, show notes, and merchandise. 
And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Crime Shack Podcast. And of course, on Twitter at The Crime Shack.